You have a seat. We certainly don't like thinking about death. It seems so grim and morbid. And yet every so often, we really do need to dwell on it. Because there's nothing like death to give us perspective on our lives here on earth. And we often so lack a healthy perspective on life. So we get so extremely nearsighted. We get engrossed in the excitement or the stress or the seeming novelty of now. And at times I think it's like the Bible wants to rip the blinders off our eyes and, and give us a dose of realism. And this is perhaps nowhere truer than in the book of Ecclesiastes. I think that one of the main reasons Ecclesiastes is in our Bibles even is to refocus us on our death. Because when we keep our death in view, it radically affects our perspective on life. When we aren't so fixated on the here and now, it actually helps us live better in the here and now. I invite you to see this with me today in Ecclesiastes 7. So if you grab a Bible and turn there with me now to Ecclesiastes 7, in this chapter, Solomon shifts gears a bit from what we've seen in Ecclesiastes so far, and he begins bombarding us with Proverbs, classical proverbial sayings. Sometimes these may seem disconnected or disjointed, but there are common threads through them. And one such key thread today in chapter 7, is death. Another repeated theme that we'll see is the word better. Better. See, he's trying to teach us wisdom for a better life. Or you could say, for the good life. Like, we all want our lives here on earth to be good, to be improved, to be better than they are now. But how God's word suggests that we can get there is very surprising. Last week, if you were with us, Adam took us through chapters 5 and 6, where we saw how frustratingly limited our wealth is. How even when God gives us great prosperity, we may not be content to enjoy it. Everything we have or don't have, our lot in life, is heaven sent to us. And we ought to be ready to receive it from the Lord as such with contentment. Chapter 6, though, ended negatively with another good image for vanity, really the theme of Ecclesiastes. And the, the image it gives is an image of a shadow. Look at the last verse in chapter 6. It says, For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? If you think back to the summer on a hot day and the sun was beating down on you, I'm sorry for talking about contentment and then bringing that up. <laughs> 
But think back then, and, and maybe when the sun was hot, shining down, maybe you saw shade under a, a tree, the shadow of a tree or a canopy of some kind. But as the sun passes through the sky or moves through the sky, the cool of your shade moves as well. The shadow passes by. Like you can move yourself or you can move the object that's casting the shadow, but you have no way to grab onto the shadow itself and move it. And it's ungraspable, short-lived, elusive, disappears, or in a word, vanity. For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. So in a world where wealth is fleeting, our work can seem so vain, what is valuable? What can we grasp onto which is good and helpful for life here on earth? Well, for one, having a good reputation. That's how chapter 7 starts. Look at it, verse 1. It says, a good name is better than precious ointment. A good name is better than precious ointment. Now, you may not show off or covet many precious ointments today, unless you're into essential oils. <laughs> but this is talking about things like expensive perfumes, incenses, even medicines, which in that day were exquisite luxuries, sign of wealth, even royalty sometimes. But what was more valuable than owning expensive luxuries. Owning a good name. A good reputation of integrity, honesty, kindness, dependability, really takes years to build, right? And as it happens, just moments to destroy. It's something Therefore, that's precious to guard. Therefore, one lesson may be, don't sacrifice your reputation in the pursuit of wealth. If you make bank, but with a bankrupt reputation, it won't be worth it in the end. Now, that's simple enough, right? It's a pleasant proverb. But nothing prepares us for the second half of verse 1, which hits us like a coffin upside the head. It says, a good name is better than precious ointment. And, likewise, the day of death is better than the day of birth. <laughs> Whoa! Where'd that come from? And how do these two lines relate to each other? Well, maybe Solomon was thinking of someone who died with either a good or a bad reputation. His death gives us that opportunity to really reflect on someone's reputation and their legacy that they're leaving. But wow! Is that actually true? That a day of, a day of death is better than a day of birth? How? Like, we dread death. We fear death. We don't look forward to funerals or, or burials at all. We believe death is actually a curse, a result of our fall into sin. So clearly, a bad thing. 
Meanwhile, our days of birth are almost always moments of celebration. We greatly anticipate babies being born. We rejoice when they arrive. Then every year, we re-celebrate again on our birthdays. Perhaps, just picture someone wiping away tears at a graveside, and another wiping away tears of happiness, just beaming, holding their newborn. How in the world is a day of death better than a day of birth? I think verse 2 gives us the start of an answer. It says, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. And the living will lay it to heart. In other words, death teaches us something. Something that we should take to heart. Something that we don't learn nearly as well from birth. There is a kind of wisdom that is only obtained by staring into the reality of our deaths. Think of Psalm 90, verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may gain or get a heart of wisdom. See, in our upside-down world, shattered by death, wisdom is found in some unexpected places. And it teaches us some unconventional, surprising things, like this, for a first example, that life in our vain world is better with the wisdom of sorrow. In the face of death, life in our vain world is better with the wisdom of sorrow. Like it says here, death is your end. Death is my end. It's the end of all mankind unless Jesus comes back first. And it is truly good for us to contemplate this truth. Since for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. As David Gibson says, living a good life means preparing to die a good death. Let's go back to verse 1, though, with that picture of the, the birth and death dates. What does death teach us that birth doesn't? Well, when a new baby is born, what do we actually know about that little person? Not much, right? We know their measurements. We can see some physical characteristics. Maybe say something like, oh, she looks so much like her mom. But when someone grows old and dies, remember they were once that unknown baby, what can we say about them on the occasion of their death? All kinds of things, right? He was a man of character. She was a woman of faith. He loved the Lord. She loved life, lived it to the fullest. He was so generous. She was so kind. Or on the other hand, they might have left a legacy of greed or selfishness or abuse 
And death brings that to the forefront as well. Gibson explains that the day of death is better than the day of birth, not because death is better than life. It's not. But because a coffin is a better preacher than a cradle. When life ends, or it's about to end, absolutely everything else comes into focus. The things that don't really matter, but which we gave so much time to, now seem so empty and pointless. The lives we touched, the generosity we showed, and the love we gave or received now mean so much more. And therefore, this is also surprisingly true that it is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. Or as verse 3 says, sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. There's a, a contrast here between wisdom and folly, between realism and escapism. The wise are willing to mourn, while fools pursue mirth to escape. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Solomon contrasts these, these two houses, he calls them the, the house of mourning. You could say funeral homes today. The house of feasting or mirth. Picture parties and banquet halls, maybe bars or clubs. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with feasting and partying and celebrating. Think of all the times Solomon's already said, eat, drink, enjoy your toil. Like it's one thing to have good times. It's another altogether to think only about having a good time. To try to, to flee reality to numb the pain, to avoid problems, or just to laugh it all away. And it's better, it's better for us to spend our time at funerals than at feasts. In fact, our feasts will mean so much more when we're conscious that they're going to expire. Right? We'll treat our joyful moments as more the precious commodity that they are. Like, living like this doesn't make us morbid. It makes us people of substance and depth. It, it intriguingly actually makes us more alive, more fully engaged with the world around us, more appreciative of each day as we recognize it as the gift that it is. Essentially, the wisdom that sorrow brings helps us value what is really vital in life. When we're sitting at a funeral home, staring at a casket, we aren't carelessly gleeful there. We're contemplatively thoughtful. The facts are staring us in the face, plain as day. We stop and think, or at least we ought to think, that will be me one day. And if that's going to be me, dead, in a box, what will my life have amounted to? What will be said about me? 
And thus, how then should I be living now, leading up to that day? What goals need reshaped? What attitudes need changed? What blessings need shared? And you get far more wisdom from that sobering sorrow than from dancing the night away. If at the funeral, we instead think, oh, this is so uncomfortable. It's unbearable. I can't wait to get out of here. I got to go drown out my discomfort at, at a pub or on a phone or playing a game. Then Ecclesiastes would tell us, you're a fool. You, that's, that is not the true good life. That's escapism. It's intentionally deluding yourself. It's living in denial. Like shrug it off, and one day you're in for a terrible shock. So instead, let sorrow be your teacher. It's like sorrow is better than laughter. No, like laughter can be a good thing, but it's not a good escape. And sorrow is better for us in that it's more helpful to us. As it says, for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. Now that isn't only saying that sorrow can be replaced with joy. Like the psalm says, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. It's saying that sorrow itself can actually be a preparation for true joy. Prepares us for joy. Like we see in 2 Corinthians 4, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. How hard we resist crying, lamenting, try to hold our tears back. And yet our tears can be so good for us. Dane Ortland talks about this. He says, our tears do not hinder growth. Our tears accelerate and deepen growth. That isn't always true, of course. We can let our tears sour us rather than sweeten us. But tears often simply reflect the removal of distraction. We are finally getting in touch with reality and with ourselves. We see more who we really are in all our vileness. We see more deeply who Jesus Christ is in all his tenderness. Do you not find, as you reflect back on your life, that there were times when sitting alone in your tears, you experienced a sublime depth of joy, of reality with God that no stand-up comedian could give you? He then says, if someone walked in on you in those moments, they would assume you're in distress, but that would be misreading the situation. And we might be tempted to, to sweep the awkwardness away by maybe making a quick joke, lighten the mood. But that would also make our welling joy dissipate as well. So he concludes that a weeping exterior can often adorn quiet, deep, solid joy. Isn't that so neat that, that God can transform and redeem an evidence of our fallenness and sorrow into something that leads to goodness, and gladness, and glory? 
And of course, one day, rest assured, God will wipe away every tear for good. But until then, believe it or not, life is better with tears. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. And the counterintuitive wisdom continues in verse 5. It says, It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. So here's another contrast between two things that we can hear. We can hear a wise friend rebuke us, or we can hear all the today's top hits on Spotify. The biggest stars today. And what's surprisingly better for us? Not what's more enjoyable. What's better? Rebukes. Provided we listen to them and heed them. Why? Well, the song of fools, he says, it won't last long at all. Look at verse 6. It says, For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. And maybe you've never thrown thorns on a fire before. Don't know if I have. But you can probably imagine how quickly the, such small, thin things would burn up. Throw them in, snap, crackle, pop. And they shrivel away into ash or smoke. Oh, they crackle away, but it's just lots of noise with no useful heat. Like, would thorns actually cook whatever's in the pot? No, they're near useless. What a vivid picture of vanity. And such is the escapist frivolous laughter and songs of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Let's recognize the superficiality of what we call entertainment in our world. It's so empty, fleeting, useless, and yet we so often spend our lives pursuing it. And in contrast... Correction can change your life forever. Like you could be far better off for it. So don't be quick to reject it or get defensive if it comes from someone wise. You want the good life. Then lean in to constructive criticism. Seek it out even. Ask someone that you trust where they think you could be growing and take what they say to heart. Now, while seeking this kind of wisdom is good, wisdom still has its limits. Even if you're wise, it doesn't automatically protect you from fallenness. Verse 7 warns us about this, saying that wise are, are vulnerable to oppression or susceptible to corruption. It says, surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. So no matter how wise you are or think you are, don't ever see yourself as infallible or let yourself be bought. After all, perspective. What good will wealth be to you once you're in a coffin or an urn? Life in our vain world is better with the wisdom of sorrow. 
The second point we're going to see is this, that life in our vain world is better with the wisdom of patience. Life in our vain world is better with the wisdom of patience. I'd add that there are several aspects to this patience. Humility, self-control, and contentment. Look with me, verse 8. says, Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. So the end being better than the beginning broadens our theme, right? The end of life is better than its beginning, but this isn't just true with birth and death. This is like finishing is better than starting in general, and that takes patience. The message paraphrases this verse as sticking to it is better than standing out. Sticking to it is better than standing out. But that's not what our culture tells it is, us, is it? Hey, our world today says standing out is essential to your well-being. You need to show the world who you really are. Wear it loud. Wear it proud. This verse tells us that internal patience actually helps us fight against pride in our hearts. We don't need to be a super special somebody right now if we can wait on the Lord. We're already special in his eyes anyway, and that's what matters most. Next, you see the patience of self-control in verse 9. It says, be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. In other words, if anger has taken up residence in your heart, like it's moved in, that labels you as a fool. Wisdom tells us to be slow to anger. Whatever strategies we have to use to do so. Now, to be clear, the initial impulse that we feel of anger that just springs up, that's not bad in itself. That just alerts us that something is wrong around us. And there's lots of things that are wrong around us, like a check engine light on our dashboard. It's a good like, indicator. But anger is a terrible solution. Our sin just tends to, to muck things up. So be careful and be patient. And then verse 10, say not, why were these the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Basically says, don't pine for the past or the, for the good old days. Be content with your now. There is plenty of good to thank the Lord for now. Besides, in a fallen world under the sun, have there ever actually been any good old days? Oh, yeah. Back in Eden. End of list. <laughs> Every era has its own evils. And we tend to romanticize the past, imagining some golden haze around it. Don't buy it! It never was the good life we imagine it to be now. 
Nostalgia can be fun, but it's overrated. And it's really another form of escapism. Longing for the past instead of working with the present or hoping in the future. Plus, if we're constantly looking to the past, thinking it was far superior to now, then we'll often miss God's presence and activity in the present. You don't want to miss that. Let's keep moving, though. Verse 11 says, Wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. So wisdom and wealth each offer some advantages in life, and if you have both, you're even better off. That's what it's saying. But if you must have only one, wisdom's the better choice. Because only wisdom can potentially save your life. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. And then comes what I think is the heart of this whole chapter in verses 13 and 14. Look at it with me. Verse 13 says, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? So, we can't change God's work, redo it, or do a better job than he does. Therefore, we should be content with our current crookedness. And we go, wait, wait, wait. Why would God make anything crooked? Valid question. Because that's not how he originally made anything. Right? His whole creation was good. Very good. Our world was not bent and broken. We were not bent and broken. But now we are. Physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually crooked. Isn't there something about you that constantly frustrates you? Like, forget everyone else around you, frustrating them. You frustrate you. (laughs) A body part that doesn't work well, a learning disability, or a mental disorder, an emotional weakness, a habitual sin that haunts you. When we fell, God justly placed our world under a curse of futility. Could say vanity, which means even God's creations sadly come out crooked for now. Not how things were meant to be, not how things eventually will be, but it is how things are. That's our reality. And yet God still works with our brokenness, healing it, correcting it, redeeming it, restoring it. Wisdom tells us, consider God in his ways. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he's made crooked? He's sovereign. He can make straight what is crooked. He can reverse the curse. But we can't. And that's the point. We need to embrace who we are as finite human creatures. Even wisdom, as great as it is, can't fix everything about our twisted world. 
And that's a matter of humility. And I think it's also, again, a matter of patience. Why patience? Because when we think this way, we become content with our times, where we are right now. As verse 14 actually encourages us to do, says, In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In the day of prosperity or adversity, somewhere in between, where do you find yourself today? Like Adam showed us last week, it's not wrong to enjoy prosperity in proper ways. Like if God has blessed you with abundant gifts, enjoy them and praise him. However, when those blessings are withheld from you, realize that that too comes from God. What it says, in the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider God has made one as well as the other. He has his purposes for us wherever he has us. And one of these purposes, surprisingly, is to keep life unpredictable for us. Did you see that? God has made one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. If we could predict or know our futures, would we need faith? Would we need hope? In fact, for that matter, if we knew how everything was going to go in life, would we need God? Again, we're human. We are very limited by design. And God makes good days and bad days for us so that we don't take anything for granted. And it would be wise for us to accept this and then be patient until he changes your season. Because the good news is a crooked world and crooked lives aren't the end of the story. And better is the end of a thing than its beginning. Now, the next few verses can be pretty confusing to us. As I studied it, it seemed like no one's really positive what they mean. Here's my best guess at the point, based on my study of them, is that life in our vain world is better with the wisdom of balance. In our vain world, which is full of extremes, life is better with the wisdom of balance. In verse 15, Solomon recounts, in my vain life, I have seen everything, seen it all. Sadly, that included pl plenty of injustice and unfairness. It says, there is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. You ever feel that frustration? I'm watching news feeds today? I know I do. And it's totally legitimate 
for us to feel the angst of that, to recoil against injustice. And yet when we do, we again lack perspective. The, the long-term perspective of eternity, that is. Because in reality, this life is as good as it will ever get for the wicked. And right now, will be the closest thing to hell God's people will ever feel. We're going to talk more about that in the next passage. But here in Ecclesiastes 7, Solomon's conclusion to this is rather perplexing. Verse 16, he says, Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? And when I first read those verses, my initial reaction was, what? <laughs> like, that's in the Bible? Why would Solomon all of a sudden encourage moderation in righteousness and wisdom? Like, that would seem to contradict all kinds of other scriptures. Like, for instance, when we're told to be holy as God is holy. Verse 17, similar. Like, don't be overly wicked. Like, Shouldn't we seek to not be wicked at all? Like if we just balance out between good and evil and just don't go crazy in either direction, we're going to be okay? Well, no, I don't believe that's at all what Solomon's actually saying here. Discuss this as I was baffled a bit with a pastor friend of mine, and he helped me talk through it, make sense of it. But I think that Solomon is addressing the fact that this crooked life doesn't fit into our neat little boxes that we make for it. Like, we make up all kinds of cutesy Christian cliches and slogans to make sense of life. Like, you're never more safe than when you're in the center of God's will. Or, God will never give you more than you can handle. But life under the sun is hardly ever that straightforward. And it's crooked. It's a, a muddy mess. In our experience, injustice often reigns. And righteousness can actually seem to wreck our lives. Like today's sermon is a, a four-point sermon on the surprising nature of the good life. But there's no simple four-step plan or guide to achieve the good life. Like simplistic, legalistic plans or slogans simply don't work in our broken world. Therefore, yes, find balance, avoid extremes, but not because it's good to dabble in both sides, but because life under the sun doesn't run like a tidy little equation or cliche. And besides, don't be overly righteous doesn't appear to be talking about true good righteousness at all, but rather a righteousness that we believe will straighten us out and keep us safe in life. Really, it's a self-righteousness. Being good and righteous in our own eyes. Trusting in our own superior goodness, we feel. Instead of having the righteousness from God that comes through faith, which begins with us realizing how unrighteous we really are in God's sight. Then there's don't be overly wicked or foolish, which seems like a no-brainer. But he's saying, don't be brazen or reckless. 
Like if you're there in, in folly, don't get comfortable in your folly. Otherwise, you run the risk of ending your life prematurely. Why should you die before your time, he asks. And thus, the wisdom of balance comes into play. In verse 18, it is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Other versions translate this as, whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. The, the way to avoid the folly of self-righteousness and the folly of reckless sin is to fear the Lord. The way my friend Josh pointed out a brilliant parallel in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. Right, in that story, we see clear examples of being both overly wicked and overly righteous. The younger brother was a fool, demanding his inheritance early, only to waste it all in reckless living. He was recklessly wicked. And if it wasn't for the extravagant love of the father, he would have ruined his life for good. Meanwhile, the older brother's sitting at home thinking that he's earned his father's love with his upright, honorable living. He deserves celebrating. His brother didn't. But in reality, his self-righteousness was just as alienating and destructive as his brother's sins. And therefore, he too needed the grace of his father. If we fear God, we will realize our brokenness no matter who we are or how good we are. And we will come running to his feet, begging him for mercy, which he actually wants to give us. He loves to give us. Which puts us in the exact place I think Solomon wants us to end, on our knees. If there is one constant underlying heartbeat of this passage, I think it's actually humility. That wisdom is better than folly because having wisdom makes us humble. Thus, life in our vain world is better with the wisdom of humility. Life in our vain, sinful world is better with the wisdom of humility. What I mean by humility is an accurate awareness of who we are in relation to God. An accurate awareness of who we are in relation to God. Verse 19 sounds a hopeful note on the apparent strength of wisdom. It says, wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. In other words, one wise person can outmatch or outwit ten powerful people. But then, verse 20 plops us right back into our seats and says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So wisdom might make you strong but it can't make you not a sinner. Surely, there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. 
Scholars believe that this is the only verse from Ecclesiastes that's clearly alluded to in the New Testament. Pops up in Romans 3.10, where Paul says, none is righteous, no, not one. And he uses this truth to build his argument that culminates with the verse you all know, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all corrupted. We're all limited by sin. Not a single one of us is actually righteous on our own. And humility starts when we admit this to be true of us. We are not righteous. We are sinners. And therefore, we most desperately need a Savior. Thankfully, you know how that famous sentence in Romans 3 continues? Yeah, we're, we're all sinned, we've all fallen short of God's glory, but also we can now be justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Like, how does God make straight what has been made crooked? Jesus is how. We must run to him. Admit our sin. Believe that he died and rose again in our place and confess him as Lord. He died not only to take away all our sin, but also to give us his own perfect righteousness. That's good news. Solomon may not have known who Jesus was, but he definitely exposes our need for him. And the rest of this chapter just continues to expose this need over and over again through other wisdom for life. Look at verse 21. It says, Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. <laughs> so don't eavesdrop, or you may hear things you don't want to hear. Besides, you know that it'd be hypocritical to take offense to other people's gossip or criticism of you because you've done it plenty of times yourself. That's the logic. Therefore, be humble. You're a sinful failure just like any other sinner you hear sinning. The next verses go on into how unreachable true wisdom can sometimes seem to us sinners, even for someone like Solomon with his superior intellect. Verse 23, all this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. But he sees that wisdom is far off, as if it were in a faraway country that he couldn't travel to. And it was deep, very deep, as if it's at the bottom of the sea where he can't swim. His search is extensive. And yet he's coming up empty feels that it's just a failure, a dismal failure. But I think the point we need to take away is, again, the limits of our wisdom and our knowledge. We aren't God. We can't know it all. And humility is willing to say, I don't know. But then, 
Solomon does say he made one discovery. Verse 26. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. Now, before you go take offense, you label Solomon a sexist or misogynist. I don't believe that he's actually talking about a literal woman in verse 26 or womankind in 28 at all. If you've read the book of Proverbs, remember how Solomon personifies both wisdom and folly as women who are calling out, trying for for people to follow them. In Proverbs 9, language very reminiscent of this, he says that the woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. And those that are seduced by her are unaware that they're going to end up dead. So when he says here, I found a woman very seductive, yet more bitter than death, I think he's talking about Lady Folly. And if we want the good life of pleasing God, we must escape Folly's snares. It says, he who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. In verse 28, Solomon's conclusion can't be that one rare man is righteous, but that no women are, unless he's talking about Jesus. He already said, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Gender's not the point. Pervasive depravity is the point. And verse 29 makes this clear. When he says, see, this alone I found. That God made man, that is humanity or mankind, God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. See, the problem in our world is not with God who makes things crooked for now. The problem in our world is not just with the devil, even if he does try to destroy us. The problem in our world is not just with the world, with its corrupt systems and cultures. The main problem in our world is us. We're the ones that made a mess of things. God made us upright, righteous, good. We're the ones that originally bent us out of shape. And we have no one to blame but ourselves for heading down an increasingly downward path. We're to blame. We're the problem. But the good news is, we don't have to be the solution. Which is fantastic, because... We're too ensnared in our sin to solve anything anyway. We need our maker to make things right. And praise the Lord that he does. And when he does, and we receive our Savior, it shouldn't make us proud, but really humble us even more that God himself 
would love us undeserving sinners to the extent that he did. Wow. This alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. You see the, do you sense the hope there? Like our schemes may be our fault, but they're not automatically our fate. Life will never be perfect here under the sun, under the shadow of death until Christ returns. But life here will be better as we learn to live humbly under the Son of God, Christ Jesus. And, by the way, his resurrection promises the joy of a better day. A better day. A day full of true and lasting prosperity. And a day of eternal life. So let's look to that. Let's pray. Father, as we sang and prayed earlier, would you fix our eyes on Jesus Christ so that we know that it can be well. Would you continue to do your work in us now, continue to convict us of sin, and shower your mercy and grace upon us over and over again? You know we need it. So we come to you now. We praise you for the work that you're doing and that you'll continue to do. In Jesus' name, amen.